Uh, Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is in the second half of your Bible. It's the the first book of the New Testament. Uh, We are uh, beginning a sermon series on the parables. And... uh, what we're going to see, the reason, the reason why we, we've had our theme, when you, know, when you walked in, you didn't just see the, the RUF logo, but below that you saw the theme that says, Sinful People, Perfect Savior. Because that's what the parables are going to constantly talk about. That we are sinful people. We don't act like we're not. That's part of Christianity. But we do have a perfect Savior. And he, he is who we're going to introduce you to tonight. And if you already know Him, then hopefully you will grow more and more closer to him. Matthew chapter 13, I'll read verses 44 to 50. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, and they sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be, at the end of the age, the angels will come out, and they will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whenever we read God's Word, one of the things I like to do is I like to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and I will look at you, and you will say, thanks be to God. So, for the very first night, this is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are incredibly glorious things in this text, and then there are things that are also they're hard. But... In your sovereignty, you have chosen this text to speak to these people where they are. We are asking that you would give us ears to hear. We are asking that you would quicken our hearts so that we would not harden our own hearts. We're asking that you would would billboard your son before us so that we might look upon his glory and see that he is good. But Holy Spirit, you must be the one who does that work in us. So we're asking that we would see him, and as we see him, that we would know that we are sinful people, but we do have a perfect Savior. We ask all this in his name. Amen. What are some of the treasures that you have discovered in your life? Jonah Berger, in his book Contagious, he tells a really interesting story about this. And in 2004, there's a guy named uh, Howard Ween. And he moved to Philadelphia, and he helped to start uh, and launch this new uh, steakhouse. You see, their goal for the steakhouse was actually to give customers the best steakhouse experience ever, which is saying something. The goal was to have not only good food and a great atmosphere, but they knew that wouldn't be enough, so they tried something different. They tried something different because 25% of restaurants fail within the first 12 months when their doors open. 60% of restaurants fail within the first three years of them opening their doors. Maybe that's why the Waffle House that we used to have here is no longer here, RIP. Um, 
Man, because we know we would be going to Waffle House afterward, right? So Ween, here, here, he decided to do something crazy because he wanted to succeed. In Philadelphia, arguably the most popular food item is the Philly cheesesteak. But he decided to do something crazy. He decided to make this ordinary sandwich a $100 Philly cheesesteak. With this cheesesteak, he would, he would make fresh brioche buns and he would brush them with mustard. He added thinly sliced expensive Kobe beef. He topped the beef with caramelized onions, shaved heirloom tomatoes, and triple cream Tellagio cheese. The entire sandwich was then topped off with shaved black truffles and butter-poached Maine lobster tails. Does that not sound like 100 bucks right there? You see, there was something interesting that happened when he made the sandwich. People did not just come to the restaurant to try it. But when they tried it, they realized that they stumbled upon a treasure and they had to tell people. So it exploded. You see, let me ask you something. What, what would taste so good that would be such a treasure in your life that you had to tell people? What would what, be one of those things that you saw that was so amazing and so worthy? And I'm not turning this mic off because this thing is the worst, is it not? Let's do this. There we go. I can talk loud enough. Everybody hear me? Sweet. I was thinking about doing a bottle flip there, but I was like, if it failed, it'd be terrible. <laughs> Here's the question. What treasure in your life that you, when you discovered it would make you tell all your friends, this is it? See, this is actually what this text is showing us tonight. See, at the beginning of the semester in the school year, we're, we're all looking for ways to, what we love to say, we love to improve ourselves, to, to become the best self that I can be, right? We love that idea. And so no doubt you're trying all these different things, maybe for the first time in college, maybe you're a transfer student, or maybe you're a returning student. Because you're hoping that maybe this next thing will be the treasure that'll really help me out. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says there is a treasure. And it'll bring far more self-improvement than you could ever find anywhere else. But this treasure is more valuable than you and me. And this treasure is not just something that we can say, oh, I'll use this treasure as a means to my end. This treasure says it is the end. But we got to get it. The question is, do you have this treasure? Look back at verse 44. Jesus is telling us this parable, but we do need to ask a question. We're going to understand this, what he's doing. We need to ask a question, what is a parable? A parable is essentially this. It is an earthly story, just an everyday story, with a heavenly meaning. But it's also far more than that. It's not just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's, it's very simple, clear truths that baby Christians or non-Christians or just very young ones like my two-and-a-half-year-old, there could be a way in which I could kind of barely teach him this story and he could understand parts of it. But the question is this. The truth that's in these stories, the question is, will you embrace it? That's what makes them difficult. The reason why I read Psalm 78 earlier is because it said in verse 2, maybe you, you recognize that, where God says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. But again, in Ezekiel 24, verse 3, God is telling his prophet Ezekiel, he's saying, and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God. 
In the context of Ezekiel there, God is pronouncing judgment upon the people of Israel for disobeying Him. Why is Jesus using parables? They're not just awesome, incredible, picturesque stories with spiritual truth. It's actually a moment of judgment. And it's actually still a moment of judgment tonight. It is either judgment to life and glory and happiness, or it is to death. You see, the Bible is not a book that just sits here where you can casually approach it and just kind of read it like any other book. It is a book that demands a response because it's not just a book. It is God's voice. God is speaking truth to you. And he's demanding a response. The parables are incredible, glorious truths about the grace that is in Jesus Christ. But will you embrace it? That's why Jesus is using parables. In this context for these people, Jesus is with the the Galilean people. It's a big agricultural society. So you can kind of see how uh, some of these truths would really hit home for them. You've maybe heard of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus is teaching, he kind of goes back from you know, the Sea of Galilee, and it seems like there's probably a house that's pretty close to the sea. And it's interesting as you read uh, Matthew 12 and 13 that he goes from the sea to the house to the sea, and it's this interesting. So that's where he is. And you have these parables about agriculture and water. The first question is this. If we were standing with Jesus, and we heard him say in verse 44... The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. The question we would have is, uh, well, really, even before that question, we, we would just see like, well, what is this man doing? See, back then, we didn't, they didn't have all the banks that we have nowadays. So what you would do with your valuables is that you would find a place in your, in your property uh, or maybe even someone else's property and you would bury it there. And so here's this picture of of this man and he's walking through this field and he stumbles over something maybe and he sees that this isn't just like you know uh, some dirt or a, a root it's treasure and that's already the first question that you need to ask do you see that this is treasure that this is something special so he stumbles upon this and he sees this treasure and he recognizes it. Now, here's what he would do. This is actually really interesting when I learned this. Is that this man, when he uses the word for man, you've heard of this word. It's anthropos, which is anthropology, the study of man. This word, anthropos, means a poor man. He didn't have much to offer. So most likely, this man is acting as a, a servant of a master. Here's what's interesting. If a servant, when he was working for his master... If he went up, and let's say this. I'm not going to literally do this because it's precious. Um, The moment he would pick up that he would lift something, he'd be doing it on behalf of the master. And the moment he lifted it, it would be the master's, not his. Notice that he does not lift it. But he sees it, and what does he do? Look at it. He sees it, and he covers it. Now... Here, here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not saying, you know, be a liar and be a deceiver. He's not giving that. He's just trying to give this picture that here was this man who saw something that was so incredibly valuable and he realized he had to have it. And that's what he did. He did not have much to offer. 
but he sold everything he had because he saw the worth and the value of that treasure. That's what Jesus is saying. But what's the spiritual meaning behind this? What does it say in verse 44 at the very beginning? Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven. You see, we would ask ourselves if we were listening to Jesus, we would know and we would probably try to probe further into what he's asking or saying. We would say, what is the kingdom of heaven? Here's what would come to mind back then. You see, in the Old Testament, God had promised that he would spread his kingdom through Israel if they obeyed him. Now, did Israel obey God? No. But God still promised to bring his kingdom. Matter of fact, it's not just any kingdom. God has promised to bring the kingdom that would come at the end of the times, at the end of this life on earth. That kingdom of peace, joy, security, identity, and home. He would bring that end time kingdom, he would bring it into the present. So when they heard Jesus say the kingdom of heaven, that's what's coming to mind. They want that. They want what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of heaven, what is that end time kingdom like? Here's what it's like. It's like a treasure. It's really cool. It's another very cool Greek word that you've heard before. But the word for treasure here is also the word for thesaurus. What's a thesaurus? It is a treasure trove of words and how they relate to each other and, and how you can understand how language works. What did Jesus mean when he used this word, thesaurus, when he used this word for treasure? You see, here's what's amazing. You know, Jesus did not have the New Testament back then. I don't know, I don't know if that was obvious because it's literally happening and then they would re- later record it, okay? So what was Jesus' Bible? The Old Testament. And everything that Jesus is doing, if you were with us back in the spring, you would have seen that all the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus. What Jesus is always doing in his ministry is he is showing the people that the God of the Old Testament is him. It is him in the flesh. And he is showing that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So the question is, how is the Old Testament using this Greek word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You tracking with me? Here we go. When Jesus is thinking about the word treasure, no doubt he's thinking about how the words used in the Old Testament, when God would call the clouds the treasure trove, what did the clouds hold? What did the clouds store? Water, rain. Rain that would pour down upon the earth and give the earth and then therefore the people and the animals what they need. Here's what's really amazing in the Old Testament. When it would rain, it was considered as God's blessing. But whenever there was a famine, it was considered God's curse. The word for treasure is also used in Proverbs, talking about how wisdom, how to live a a wise life, that is treasure. But it's also used in the book of Chronicles a lot. You see, in the temple, in Israel's temple, that would be the place where God meets with his people. There would be this place in the temple called the treasury. And it would be the riches that Israel would have because of their defeated enemies and their own people bringing in treasures. The temple was filled with riches. It was one of, not like formally as we know, the seven wonders of the world, but it was certainly one of the wonders of the world. The treasury 
was what made the temple so rich. Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that treasure. It's like that wisdom. It's like those clouds. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that he is God's blessing for you. It's a bold statement. Jesus is saying he is the treasure trove of all wisdom that you need in this life. If you want to understand this life, you need Jesus. Jesus is saying also he is the infinite riches of God because he is God. He is the temple. He is where God meets with us. That's amazing. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a a treasure. That's who he is. Because he is the king of the kingdom. See, my friends, I want to ask you a question. When you hear about Jesus, do you recognize that he is not just a treasure, but that he is the treasure? That he is glorious. That he's beautiful. That he's worth your time. He's worth your worship. He's worth your whole life. See, our treasures today are often things like social media. Being the life of the party and getting in that friend group or succeeding in that major. And all those things can be good things until we make them ultimate things. Until we make them the treasure. Because here's what will happen. You will pursue these things and you will look at them and you will say, be God to me. Be the treasure of my life. And the more you pursue it, you'll realize it can't do it. And that often puts you in a downward cycle. Because what will happen is when you get to that breaking point where you realize this can't be the treasure for me, you got one of two options. One, either press further into it and force a way to make that thing your treasure, which eventually won't work. Or you go and try something else. But then ultimately you will realize that that's not a treasure either. Jesus is saying he's the treasure. You see, the reason why we don't pursue, or excuse me, the reason why we sense that cycle happening in our life whenever we pursue other things in Jesus as the treasure, you see, that's what our hearts crave. We're longing to find that thing, and we trade God for created things. And isn't that one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with the fear of missing out? Maybe it's already happened to you this week. You pulled up social media, Instagram, or whatever it is, Snapchat. Be real, right? I know I'm old, but I'm learning. Um, And have you seen a picture that maybe where a lot of people are and you thought, oh, no. If I could have just been there, then fill in the blank. Do you know what you're treating that as? If I was only there, then I would finally find my treasure and that would make everything right. But it never does. Maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why we have a fear of missing out because we think that these other created things could possibly be the treasure, but it can't. You see, Moses gives us something very interesting that will help us learn about this in Genesis 127 when he says, God is proclaiming amidst the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's saying that let us make man in our image. You see, you were made in the image of God, which means this. As Augustine once prayed, 
He's speaking to God. He's saying, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have been made, as it were, with a hole in your heart that is of an infinite size. And like a puzzle piece, it has to be the right piece to fill in that hole, but it can only be someone infinite. That's why you'll never find satisfaction, lasting happiness outside of Jesus. Everything is fleeting, but it's meant to point you to him. See, we're often like Tanelier, Tavon, the collector in the Marvel movies. We love collecting different treasures. We love people bringing us treasures. But see, Jesus cannot just be another treasure in your life. He must be the treasure because he is. We don't make Jesus the treasure just because he says, please make me the treasure because he has some sort of insecurity problem. No, no, no. He is saying, make me the treasure because I am the treasure. That's why he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See, what Jesus is telling you tonight in this first parable is this. He is telling you tonight that if you embrace him by faith as the treasure of your life, then you will find lasting satisfaction. But not only that, you'll also find the kingdom of heaven. And you will also, when God judges all of humanity, he will judge you to be in the right. But it's if you embrace Jesus as your treasure. I've met two very interesting people in my life. Uh, one of them is a 90-year-old man from Kenya who you've never met and you've never heard of and who's probably dead at this point because that was back in 2012. The other person I met is Tom Brady because in 2014, yes, I know, <laughs> polar opposites. Because in 2014, I had the chance to play with the Patriots for about four months. Two very different people. Tom Brady is the goat in your face. Uh, uh, hey, I played, I played with Joe Montana's son and... He would still say, Tom, there we go. Shout out. Uh, here's the thing. There's a 60-minute story that was years ago, and from everything I know about it, it seems like it's still true now. Tom had multiple Super Bowl rings. He had a supermodel wife, and they asked him, when is it enough? And he essentially says, I don't know. The 90-year-old man in Kenya, when we were on this mission trip, he was absolutely dirt poor. And we went to this village, and one of the guys on our team shared the gospel with him. And in that moment, he believed. And you know what he did? He went and immediately told the gospel to another person in his village, and they believed. Here's the question. Which one of them is more rich? Which one of them has found the treasure? Do you want that treasure? Look at verses 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who... On finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Do you want treasure? But do you want riches? So Jesus is essentially saying here, do we want riches? And I was interesting because in verse 44, he had used the word for man, which meant a poor man. But now he uses a merchant, which is obviously someone very rich. 
The point here is not how much money you have. Jesus is doing something where he's saying, like, look, from A to Z, no matter where you are in life, the biggest thing is, do you see who he is? Doesn't matter what skin color you are, male or female, what's happened in your life, what era of history you're born in, the question is this, do you see the worth and the value of Jesus Christ? That's it. Jesus is talking about his merchant. He's in search of fine pearls and he finds one. It says of great value. This would mean that it was even better than what he was looking for. But it's interesting that it says that he was in search of fine pearls. And really it's this idea that Plato uses. And he says that a pearl is what the ideal Greek life is. That was kind of the picture that Plato would use. And isn't that what we're looking for? You come to OSU, maybe back, maybe for the first time. You've come to OSU looking for the ideal life. The ideal life of finding the friends or having the money or getting the respect or finding the beautiful spouse or getting that job or having the productive life or sexual gratification or even self-acceptance. What's the ideal life for you? See, we often love to pursue the ideal life, but doesn't it point back to what we were talking about earlier? Have you found it? And have you realized that maybe you can taste some glimpses of it, but then you realize it doesn't really satisfy? And then what happens? You try something else out. Let's be honest. Isn't when we realize that we have not found the ideal life, isn't that one of the biggest reasons why we go out and get drunk or why we sleep around? Because we long to feel something real. That's why we do that. But Jesus is saying that in this search for, as it were, the ideal life, this guy stumbles upon a pearl of great value, a once-in-a-lifetime find. There's like a crazy story I read about this. There's this guy named Roy Wetstein. He was a rock collector, and he had two sons one day in 1986, and they both gave him five bucks, and they wanted Dad to go find them a rock. And so he goes to this local rock show, as it were, and he finds in this Tupperware a bunch of, uh, if you know what a gates are, and then all of a sudden, this massive potato-sized rock in there. And the sign on this Tupperware says, any, any rock, 15 bucks. Any rock. So he finds this massive thing, and you know it, it looks ugly, not appealing. And he asks the guy, he says, hey, do you want 15 bucks for this? And he says, look, I'll just give it to you for 10. He buys it for 10 bucks. He can hardly contain his excitement until he gets out the building because he realizes something. For $10... He just bought the largest star sapphire rock in the world that is worth over $2.5 million uncut for $10. But isn't that very similar to our lives in this season of college? You're looking for the ideal life when the star sapphire is right here. Don't miss out on it. That Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light. He is the infinite riches. And to miss out on him is to, is to settle for the agates rather than the star sapphire. Jesus is saying, I am the pearl. I am the once in a lifetime find. I am the one who is worth losing everything just to get. Do you see who I am? That's what he's saying. So Paul says in Romans 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
You see, when you realize that Jesus is the once-in-a-lifetime pearl, the real riches, it's not going to be easy, but it'll be worth submitting your whole life to. It's not easy. It'll be worth submitting to him your career, your relationships, your dreams, your time, and even your sexuality. Why is it worth it? Because he's worth it. It's not easy, my friends. But it is worth it. Paul says again in Philippians 3 verse 7, he said, but whatever gain I had, and this is after Paul's just listed out his immaculate resume. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Guys, do you see him? That's what Jesus is telling you in this very moment. As he is judging you between life and death, he is saying, do you see the worth and value of who I am? See, he is the infinite riches. He is the one who is rich in righteousness. He is the one who is rich in forgiveness. He is rich in cleansing, rich in atonement and grace and love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, compassion, goodness, goodness, faithfulness. I hardly have any more breath. Amen? Come on now. You awake? This is Jesus Christ. The one who we are meant to live for, the creator of the world. And even though we rebelled, he came down, took on flesh to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died so that he can give it to you freely. There is no one like him. Do you want to know why heaven will never be a boring day ever? Because of him. Because of Jesus Christ. Do you want real riches? Here's the third question. Do you want salvation? Look at verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. It's thrown into the sea and it gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, the men drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a harder statement. But it's flowing out of the other two. This isn't random. Because what Jesus is saying here is that depending on how you see him, if you see him as the treasure and if you see him as the pearl, then that will determine your standing as either a good fish or a bad fish. I remember when I was in Orange Beach, Alabama. I grew up in Montgomery, if you can't tell by this amazing accent. Um... I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and we would often go down to Orange Beach. And one of my earliest memories is being with my dad and taking just one of those little bitty kids' cast nets and throwing it into the water to try to pull back the fish. And what would happen is as you would pull back the the fish that you would have in the cast net, you would keep the good fish that you would use for later, and you would throw away what's not good. And that's the picture here. What's interesting here is that Jesus is saying that we are fish, that all of humanity is fish because God's in the fishing business. That's why Jesus will say earlier in chapter 4, verse 19, he calls his disciples to be fishers of men. God's ready to, he's ready to get you, maybe even tonight. But there's something interesting here because it says in verse 49 that when the men drew it ashore, and you can imagine them just, you can imagine these Galilean people really seeing this picture, that they would be, I mean, heaving to bring this thing up on shore because it'd be a huge net with a lot of fish. They bring up the fish and it says they sat down. Don't skip over that. That's not just a random 
you know, just note that Jesus is saying just to paint a picture. In the Bible, to sit down is a posture of judgment. When it says that Jesus ascended in heaven, it talks about how he sat at the right hand of the Father. That is a posture of judgment. Sitting down here is picturing the judgment that will happen at the end of time. Remember the, the end of time kingdom. That's what Jesus is thinking about. But let me remind us before we think further about this end time judgment, let me remind you that the point of this parable is not to sit here and woe on us if we do this to say, hmm, who are the good people and who are the bad people? Shame on us. Our job is to fish. Our job is to show people who Jesus is and we wait for the judgment to happen. We just fish. But Jesus talked about how at the end of the age there will be the judgment. They'll separate the good from the bad. And really the question of judgment boils down to this. Are you in a good relationship with God? That is the question. Are you, don't think about someone else of like, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here for this message. You, me, are you in a good relationship with God? How do you know? Well, you got to ask two questions. First, are you good enough? God has given us a standard. His standard reveals who he is. We have to measure up to God, not how good we are compared to other people. And actually, when we see ourselves compared to God, Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. Chapter 3, verse 23, Romans, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he also goes on to say in Ephesians 2 that it's not just that we do bad things, but that sin is who we are. Sin is lodged deep within our hearts. Sin has caused us to be spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our sins. You're not even alive to God. Jesus himself says in Mark 7, 21 to 23, for from within, literally from the core of your being is what he's saying here. For from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Are you good enough? Am I good enough? He is good. We sang that earlier, but are you good? No. I know I might get canceled over that nowadays because it's all about self-acceptance and all that stuff. So... I'll turn in my pink slip or whatever it is. But that's what God is saying. We are sinful people. But how can we be judged in being in a good relationship with God? Galatians 2 verse 16 gives us the answer. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. What Paul is saying is that you are not justified by being good because you can never be good enough. So how are you justified? 
Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, you are not good enough, but He is. Amen? Amen. You are not good enough, but He is the righteous one. And when you trust Him, not when you work for it, don't you dare try to work for it. You bring Him your sins. You bring Him your shame. shame. You bring Him all of your uncleanliness. And you say, please take it because you are the only Savior. And He says, I will. And that's how you get in a good relationship with God. You see, when is this going to happen? It's going to happen at the end of the age, but the judgment can be applied to you right here, right now, if you merely believe in Jesus Christ. Why would we even wait for this? That's what the parables are essentially saying. You know, the parables, as what I've been trying to say, is that the parables are actually as it were, bringing early the end time judgment. And it's saying, look, hear ye, hear ye. There is a way where you can be in the right with God. Embrace it. Why would you wait? Why would you keep pursuing these trinkets rather than the treasure? Some of you might say, but I've done some really terrible things. Well, good news, welcome to the club. Jesus come to save very terrible people. Jesus came to save the sick, not the healthy. You may say, but I've done, I haven't done enough good deeds. Welcome to the club. Jesus came to do the good deeds for us, not to add on to his work. You might say this, but you don't understand how messed up my heart is or how long I've struggled. Surely Jesus is just tired of me. You, my friend, are the type of person Jesus came to save because you could never get it together. That's why he came. Your sins, your shame, your struggle is like a student ID card where that gets you either into a, a building or a dorm, a classroom. You, know, you swipe your card, and if it's the right card, it gives you access into the building. You do not leave your sins to the side. You bring your sins to Jesus because he's died for sinners. Don't hold anything back. That's who he is. But what happens if you don't respond? That's what Jesus is talking about here in 49 and 50. He does say there will be judgment in hell. You know, no one talked more about hell than Jesus. You might say, well, I only believe in a God of love. Well, good, I believe in a God of love too. It says right there in 1 John 4, 8 that he is love. But my friends, if I love someone, for instance, my son, I'd be a really terrible father if I didn't love my own son, right? And if one of you suckers came up and slapped my son silly, boy, it'd be on like Donkey Kong, right? <laughs> I remember seeing a video the other day and this guy's, this, the, video, the caption says, you know, what would you have done if you were the father and this bully of a kid on a playground comes over and like violently shoves this kid down and it goes back to the guy who's trying to answer the video and he tries to say really calmly, he's like, you know, son, sometimes that stuff just kind of happens and, you know, it'll be okay. And then he acts like he turns the camera off and uh, obviously he's still filming him and he goes, boy, I would have whooped that kid. <laughs> Why? Because he loves him. God is love but he will not stand for the things that are unlovely. 
he must, if he is to be God, if he is to be just, he must punish sin. But you see how this is leading to the cross, right? How are we saved? Because the God of love took on flesh and he went to the cross and God poured out his anger upon him rather than his own people. He poured out his wrath that you would have to experience in hell for eternity upon Jesus in a moment of hours upon the cross. Jesus took your hell so that he could give you his heaven. And when you have Jesus, there is no more wrath. You are judged in the right with this God. It is a one-time act and it will never change. Amen? But the question is, do you see him as the treasure? Do you see him as the riches? Do you want this salvation? We're often like John Rockefeller, aren't we? John Rockefeller was considered the wealthiest American ever. Some scholars estimate that he had a net worth of today, would have been a net worth of around $400 billion. That's billion with a B. He was once asked this question, how much money is enough? Maybe you've heard it. He answered, just a little bit more. Maybe it is money for you. Or maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's likes, either on social media or in real life. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's friends. How much is enough? And in our sin, we say just a little bit more. Here's the problem. You'll never find satisfaction. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? My friends, Jesus Christ is the treasure. He is the riches. He is the salvation. You need him. Amen? Believe that and you'll be saved. Let me pray. Father, we're asking that in your mercy that you would cause us to become spiritually alive by the power of the Spirit. And oh, that he would shine that divine spotlight upon Christ. That as we see him in his majesty and his glory and him being the savior of wretched sinners, that we would indeed respond in singing from the heart in Christ alone, because it is in Christ alone. Father, would you bring genuine renewal and revival on this campus? And would you help us to treasure Jesus Christ as he really is? We ask all this in his name. Amen.